This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Mark Anderson and Ralph Habutsky. And we are going to talk about their new book. This is a mini interview. Uh, we don't have very much time. So this is uh, for the blog part of Loud Fast Philly. And we're recording this on July 10, 2018 at Bull's House in West Philadelphia. Uh, gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. Uh, I'm sorry we don't have more time to talk, but I'm glad at least we can, we can talk a bit about this. Um, so people who come out to the live events are probably going to get to hear about the genesis of the project and how the two of you came together to do it, but a lot of other people not privy to the, you know, the live events won't really get to know that. So uh, I hope that they'll be able to listen to this and learn a little bit about the process. So if you want to just tell me the origin of this project and, and, and also how the two of you uh, know one another. Well, I guess I'll start because um, I would say that the, the origin of the project comes from a shared experience that Ralph and I had quite independently, um, which is uh, both in our mutual locations, in his case Michigan, in my case Montana, we were profoundly impacted by this version of the clash, the version of the clash that existed for two years after the expulsion of Mick Jones from the band. And we were following it very closely, very excited about it, waiting for this amazing record that we were sure was going to come from this new fiery unit. And then waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. <laughs> and then we were rewarded with the single This Is England and the album Cut the Crap, which, um, you know, I think we both over the years have come to appreciate the value that's there, um, but it was extremely confusing at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as we had finished absorbing our confusion from that, we heard that the band had broken up. This is like early 1986. And I think that both of us were left with a brain teaser. What on earth happened? Because it seemed so full of promise. They, they were saying, as speaking as a, someone who was profoundly transformed by this, and, and my life direction was literally changed by the words and the music and the interviews from that time, particularly Joe Strummer's, you know, saying, you know, the clash lost its way. We got too focused on the top 10. We forgot about where we came from. You know, we want to get back to punk rock roots. You know, we, we got to get up and fight again, you know, basically. And it totally impressed me that, but then how did this suddenly just collapse? What happened? And, um, we wanted to know. I mean, we were fans who couldn't get this itch out of our, uh, kind of, out of our psyche. And, uh, you know, my first, you know, concrete um, expression of this was when I interviewed Joe Strummer in 1989 and found it a thoroughly puzzling experience once again, because he seemed to be kind of just disavowing all of this stuff and, and saying something that I didn't believe, which was he was saying that punk rock was of its time. It, it, it was Essentially, he was saying it was dead and it couldn't go again. We, we tried to do something that was impossible. Now, I was part of the DC scene. And let's just say 1989, we were like, no, punk's just getting started, Joe. <laughs> did, did he have any awareness of, of this vibrant scene that came out of that but was sort of independent of it? Ironically, he would ultimately learn about it and it actually becomes part of our story, but I'm getting ahead of the story now. Um, uh, and so 
that was my first expression of this. Ralph's ex first expression was actually much more, I think, uh, in-depth and, and tremendously valuable. If you want to trace the actual written beginning of our book, you would trace it to the work Ralph did in the early 1990s. So tell us about it. Right. So for me, that I, I count from 89 because that's when I first actually got the idea to do something like this. And then I went to the UK, of course, where it all started and started tracking these folks down and ironically that was one of my initial motivations i wanted to track down vince nick and pete to ask those are the three members who came in late in the band and were kind of summarily discarded at a certain point mm -hmm. i wanted to ask those guys what happened you know why did it go this way why did it flame out and then my hope was we could work to the upper tiers and Little by little, we sort of started getting there. I started getting there, and you know, I interviewed people like Ray Jordan, who was the uh, chief of their security and longtime head roadie, if we want to call him that, and many of these associates. But of course, once we got a little closer to the inner ring, that became a bit more problematic. And by that, I mean, you know, Joe Mick and company. I mean, I actually went to shows to stake them out and see if I could get something that way. Now this was for a series of, of articles that you were writing? Or was well, this... initially that was the initial momentum, so I did two major ones. One for Goldmine, which was in the, I'm going back here, spring of 92, I think. And then for Discoveries, and that's when I got a hold of Johnny Green. He was a big part of that, the former road manager of The Clash. That came out in two years later, I think, spring of 94. And then, again, I started thinking, wow, this would... This would make a really good book, and I wasn't terribly happy with the way the second one was edited. They cut out a lot of essential stuff, I thought, although ironically stuff I could reuse later if I wished. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking, let's do a book, and then it took two years to actually get somebody to agree to take it on, and for various boring reasons, the uh, publishing process works a lot like the Electoral College. It filters things out more than it lets things in. I couldn't get it off the ground, which was pretty discouraging, as you can probably imagine. Mm -hmm. I actually had a potential agent, I remember, write me back and say, this wouldn't stand a chance in today's market. The emphasis is on what's new, not the past. That was only five years after the band had broken up. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is quite a statement to make. If there has been, well, then what does that say for anybody else, mm -hmm. right? And so I made periodic attempts to refloat it, with or without backing, but just wasn't getting anywhere. And I was—I think I'd actually laid it to the side, which was when Mark contacted me and expressed his interest and told me he was working on something and would you give me some contacts. And then I got a bit skeptical in the beginning. I thought, nah. I need a bit more out of it than that because I'd had people do that before. They'd pick your brain and then they just, you'd never hear from them again. So you two didn't know one another? No. We actually, we actually met each other in the flesh for the first time three days ago when we did yeah. our book launch oh, event. Really? <laughs> this all happened over internet and the phone, which is partly a tribute to the technology. The and the technology, but also the Clash community that's out there. Yeah. Because to kind of fill in from the other side, I. You know, this, this period of time in The Clash, the last two years, was fundamentally important to me. Now, let's go back. This is 1977 was where I first encountered The Clash, and they were part of a total revolution in my life. That's when I'm living back in Sheridan County, Montana. I'd grown up on a farm and ranch. And so they were, became my favorite band, and I followed them through, you know, the peaks and valleys that came. Um, but in 1984, when 
you know, after Mick Jones was kicked out and they, this new version of The Clash, this uh, kind of purified and reinvented version of The Clash came out, it, it, it just happened at the exact right moment for me because I had gone through everything back out in, in, in Montana. I, I had decided I could not possibly go back home and, and do manual labor for the rest of my life, so I had to find another way. Punk rock gave me the courage to not only take the classes I cared about and not worry about getting some fancy job, but also encouraged me to become an activist. And so I, I did really well in school at Montana State University, whose nickname is Moo U. <laughs> Same as MSU, my there alma mater. There we go. And so uh, <laughs> I, uh, I did really well on my grades and my test scores, and my advisor said, you can go anywhere you want if you can pay for it. And so I figured out I wanted to go to a fancy school in Washington, D.C. Um, and we took out big student loans to go there. Now, part of why I came there was the DC scene. I knew about it already, you know, Minor Threads, Straight Edge, Henry Rollins, Bad Brains, Urban Verbs, you know, PMA, stuff like that. So I was kind of fascinated by that. But mostly I was going because it, it presented the possibility of a successful career going to the school. I was essentially getting a ticket into the lower echelons of the American ruling class. I, you know, I, and I, I'm very frank about that. I, I was very conflicted about it, but you know, the, the lure of society's idea of success is powerful and, 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 and drew me in. So when I started reading what Strummer was saying that the success of the clash in many ways was an illusion and that they didn't want that, they needed to get back to what was real. It made a big impact on me. And, and ultimately it is that you know, that idea that gave me the interest and the courage to re-engage with punk, in this case with the DC punk scene, right before, you know, historical accident extraordinaire, the revolution summer was about to happen. And so Positive Force, this activist group, which is coming straight out of my experience of the clash and the idea that, that punk has to do more than just talk about things, we have to do things. It dovetailed perfectly with the moment that was being prepared by people who had been there for a long time in uh, D.C. Um, and it's an ex extraordinary thing. You write it up in a, in a story, you would say, oh, that's very unlikely. It seems a little too far-fetched, but it happened. It happened. Um, and so, I, even after the end of the band and kind of the, the puzzling somewhat unsatisfying nature of the Cut the Crap record, which clearly didn't fully represent what was happening then. Um, I, it, I just held on to this, and I remember, um, I think the point where it was clearly crystallized in my mind that this book had to be done was when the sound system box set, like a, kind of the final will and definitive testament of The Clash comes out. Um, and they've totally expunged any discussion of this, any of the music from this, um, which was not unusual. They had already done it in West Way of the World. Um, they'd done it in their big pink coffee table book, but it really irked me because I knew it meant everything to me. And, and it's like somebody should tell the story. And so I started to try to do it, but I discovered as I started my research that there was this guy named Ralph Hybutsky who hey, was, <laughs> was being lauded as the ultimate Clash scholar. And I saw in different posts that he was thinking of doing a Clash book, perhaps right on this period. And so, you know, I had collaborated with Mark Jenkins on Dance of Days, you know, the history, narrative history of the DC punk scene. 
And, you know, I, I kind of have faith in people, and especially people who are part of this community that rise up around these things that have meant so much to me, that there's something, there's going to be a common ground upon which we're going to be able to work. And so, was Ralph skeptical? Yeah, fair enough. Who is this guy? Crazy guy, says he's from Montana, but he's calling from D.C., wants to do this. Why? I've already published all this stuff. Why would I work with him? Well, because, and I think this is what drove us both, together we could do a book that was better than the book that either of us would do alone. And, and it mattered to us to do this, and we trusted, and we do trust, that it will matter to other people. Because not only is this, the last two years of The Clash, profoundly important in terms of the overall meaning of the band, when you understand what they're trying to do, um, but it just happens that this great drama within the band happens at a moment, I think, of fundamental importance in the socio-political realm. The definitive breakthrough of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and the creation of the world that we live in now. Um, and, you know, people look back and they kind of assume that, okay, well, that was always meant to be, you know, the Revolutionary War, of course America was going to, you know, the colonies were going to win. Oh, the Civil War, of course, you know, <laughs> slavery was going to fall. Oh, you know, it, you know, segregation, of course it was going to end. But, you know what? <laughs> it was not clear at the time. It was not clear. It took people acting out of faith and conviction and, and, and just giving everything, hoping and trusting that if you did something that was of ultimate meaning and importance to you, that it would have some importance in the ultimate balance of, of history. Um, and so um, we go back and we see, we see that the world we have now did not need to be. There were decisions made, um, mistakes, I would say, often, and the world turned. Why is that important? And this is, for me, fundamentally important, why I would spend my time in the middle of this clusterfuck of a moment in American history. Why would you spend time writing a book about the clash 30 years ago? You know, okay, British minor strike. Okay, that sounds kind of cool, but yeah, they were out there for a year, but why? What, Trump is trying to turn America into, you know, some sort of fascist boot camp. Why would you dig up this old history? And the answer is, and my general answer is, history exists precisely to give us lesson about what happened and why, and to give us fuel, inspiration for the fight right now. So when I go into history with this history of the DC punk uh, movement or uh, the clash or the British miners strike, it is precisely to bring us something that we need right now to fight and win. That is the only reason that I do history. Now, it doesn't mean that I do history to follow some ideology, you know, to some, follow some party line, because that's bullshit. The only way you can do it and have it be worth the paper is printed on is if you're relentlessly pursuing the truth, which is what we try to do in this book. And frankly, the book doesn't make the members of the Clash, including one of my great heroes of all time, Joe Stromer. It doesn't make them look great. It looks and make, makes them look like well-intended and imperfect human beings, which guess what? That's what they are. That's what we are. And we still can do something of ultimate importance. We can do something revolutionary. It will not be easy. We do have to take lessons from this time, but there is another version of the American 
experiment which is still being born, a revolutionary one, and that's what we have to give ourselves to now. Or in the case of the UK, you know, whatever, the British Revolution, if you will. Um, so what we discover when we do this is not only tell a tale about this band, but we tell a tale about their time. And as it happens, we believe that what happened then profoundly is connected to what is happening right now. And when we understand the hows and whys of then, we have some sense of how to respond now. What to do, and maybe more importantly sometimes, what not to do. Now Ralph, do, do your feelings in some way or mirror Marx regarding what he wants to, what, what he wanted to put into this and what he wanted to get out of it? I would say it, w it would mirror that and then some because I think that uh, in my particular case when we talk about the clusterfuck moment, well these are things that I'm living right now since when they were trying to pull the plug on the Affordable Care Act, well, my wife gets $3,800 worth of medicines a month that are covered through Medicare and Medicaid. Imagine what happens if somebody messes with that. Right, right. So I almost felt, when that was gearing up, I almost felt like the miners, like we were being attacked by this vicious, monetarist, corporatist sort of regime. And so it was either a case of what do you do in those moments? You have to fight back, or it's like Scargill said, we could either fight back or we could surrender, and you know, surrender's not an option. So in my mind, it's this rather... Arthur Skill, Scargill being the leader of the Miners' Union during this titanic strike that lasted mm -hmm. for a year and, and ended in defeat, giving Margaret Thatcher free hand to do what she wanted to do. But in my mind, it's the... the as a journalist especially, I write about many of the same topics again and again. What always strikes me is the issues themselves don't change. It's the way that people respond to them that changes. And the struggle that we make today is the same one that people were making back in this time period that we're talking about, whether it's the British miners or, for that matter, America, the, the striking air traffic controllers that Reagan fired and ultimately, of course, set us on this path of trying to eliminate unions as a counterweight to corporate power. All of that is very relevant and so, as I said, I feel personally involved. So the approach that we took in that respect is the, is the best one. And then just to flip that around a little bit, there's one review, and I don't know if you've seen this, Mark, but I, you might have pointed this out to me, but where they said it was a willfully contrarian reading of the band's history. And I thought, there's nothing willful or contrarian about it. Well, is, is the general thought, I mean... We're following, we're following the facts as we know them. We're, right? we're, we're glad to discuss down. the evidence, and, and you know, people can yeah. disagree, but we're based on facts, we're based on documents. There's 60 shows that this version of Clash did then, you know, they exist. We build a book up from that. The, the research we did on the pol political stuff, you know, it's exhaustive as well. You know, and we didn't enter it to create some agitprop, unbalanced thing. We actually did want to be fair and balanced. We're even trying to be fair to Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And I can tell you, I detest them. Um, but you got to give them their due. And, you know, honestly, Ronald Reagan looks kind of like a nice guy compared to this bozo in the White House now. <laughs> I know. I never thought we would say we would say anything like that. But Well, I mean, in regards to being contrarian, I guess the general feeling from the world is that the record, Cut the Crap, is, is a bad record or a failed record. 
I don't know how it's felt in in the more intense clash community that, that the two of you would move. Very from. controversial record. Right. But actually, though, on the If Music Could Talk board, as you know, it's quite celebrated. So there is there's a segment of the clash community that does celebrate the record. We actually take a more nuanced approach. We see what's good in the record, and we also see where what's it not fails. So good. Yeah, what's not so good because actually. I would say, like, uh, Robert Christgau gave the record a B plus. It's probably about right. The record has the potential to be, have been a groundbreaking neo-punk record. You know, basically the kind of thing that happens with bands like uh, Nirvana or Fugazi or Green Day or Offspring or something like that, where people believe in the energy of the original punk vision and the musical form. Not that they don't want to change it some, you know, they mm -hmm. want to develop it, don't want to be just a carbon copy, but you believe that that kind of vehicle is a profound one and you don't want to necessarily, you know, be, you know, drifting off in all these directions to prove you're a serious musician. You can do punk full on and be entirely serious about it, not just simply as like a political thinker or a movement builder, but as an artist, as a musician. And that that kind of ambition was there in the Clash. What's interesting about the record is that it is kind of a story unto itself. How it comes to be, um, it's kind of well. Paul Simonon, the bass player of the Clash, calls it a coup d'état by their manager Bernard Rhodes, who is of course far more than a manager. He's a co-founder. He's kind of part of the band from the get-go. Um, but there was a whole nother record, given the material that new version of the band had made and the way they had played it live, that could have could have been made. It could have been on the par with the kind of trailblazing record that the first record was, or some people believe London Calling to have been. Or even, I mean, Santa yeah. Mista, I think, is a really well-regarded record that goes off in, in very A lot of different tangents. Yes. But, yeah. And yeah. I will say, like I said, I've told Mark many times, he got me to kind of adjust some of my own thoughts on this. Now, when Cut the Crap came out, I felt as let down as anybody else because I'd seen that tour, my one and only time seeing The Clash. And I thought, what happened? You know, this is a train wreck. Later on, as I played guitar and I learned, you know, music, I realized there is more to the story. And, and then we learned more of the story, Ralph initially, and then we did even more research for this. And, of course, the irony being that the very band that had shaped those songs and played them with such fire and conviction on the tour was largely kind of kept on the bench. not not allowed to make this record and then the final ironic twist in this to me is yet you read many reviews they get the blame for what was put out yeah because they say cut the crap shows that this new version of the band couldn't play if you actually know how cut the crap is made the drummer in the band is not there the bass player in the band not there okay both guitar players end up playing on it but that's after bernard rose has constructed this radically different foundation for the songs the songs have been reinvented, rewritten in some cases, from what they played live. Yeah. And it's really his vision all the way through. Now, we argue, and some of the former members of the Clash argue, that he had some good ideas, but he didn't realize them very well, and he nearly destroyed the band there and then. Because, imagine, you're the fucking Clash, and <laughs> you got this manager, who's more than a manager, but still, you know, he's not playing the music. He's telling you, no, don't play that, play this. It's like, what the fuck do you know? You know, the, the drummer is sitting in a hotel room. It's like, when am I going to be called? The bass player's not even there. 
because he turned it over. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's kind of insane, although it is kind of of a piece of the almost insane ambition of the band. And so in that sense, Cut the Crap actually makes sense because look at Sandinista. You know, three record set that they're selling for one dollar. I mean, for the price of one price record. Price of one record, yeah. And, and it's all over the place. It's like, is this a punk band? The music is, there's a def dozen different, maybe two dozen different types of music in that. But part of what they're doing is they're saying, yes, it is. It's punk in spirit. Yeah, and the punk spirit is certainly there in Bernard Rhodes and what they try there. But what is very sad is that um, for those who saw the band, not all of them, but many, maybe most, there was a fire in that version of the band that was missing in the later Clash. Um, partly because I think the band became terribly conflicted because they were so successful and success called into question everything they were about. I mean, are, are you winning the revolution by playing the Us Festival before 250,000 people, most of whom are probably more interested in the beer they're drinking than who's on stage? Is it a victory to open for the Who at Shea Stadium? Okay, so should I stay or should I go is gone big, but where is the revolution in the song? I mean, and, and you're, you just feel like you're making a million compromises and you hope, you hope that in the end it's worth it. And the whole reason for the last version of the band to exist is because at least Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon and Bernard Rhodes decided the price wasn't worth it. They wanted to do something else that seemed more real. Um, and they had to um, kick out you know, the person they deemed as a rock star, Mick Jones. They, before that, they kicked out Topper Hedden. You know, both brilliant musicians, actually probably musically the most accomplished members of the Clash in any formation. Um, but, uh, you know, drugs, rock stardom, does that sound like revolution? No. So, whether you agree with what they do at the end, whether you think it's smart or not, and clearly in a commercial sense, it's suicide what they're doing. You know, it looks like suicide. They don't believe it's suicide. They're not doing it for suicide. But, you know, the record company didn't want them to kick out Mick Jones. You know, who wanted them to kick out Mick Jones? They wanted to because they felt like there was something more important than this narrow top 10 version of success. And my God, isn't that a message we need to hear? Whether they succeed or fail, isn't that important to see how they're wrestling with this? I think it is. It had everything to do with the fact that I went on to help start Positive Force DC um, in DC, a punk activist collective. Everything to do with the fact that I've dedicated the last 30 plus years of my life to work in the inner city of Washington, DC. It is music that mattered. And th this is a band that mattered. Um, and, and of course, there's also this extraordinary story of the busking tour, where the band, after the creation of Cut the Crap, where they're basically just about ready to kill each other, um, and you're not even sure there's a band anymore, they're like, okay, fuck it, we're just gonna go and be a band. We're gonna play for free on the streets of any city we turn up in, hitchhiking, on the bus, on the train, whatever. We'll s set up and play for anybody. This is one of the biggest bands in the world, and for two and a half weeks, they went around the north of England, which, by the way, was the part most sledgehammered by the defeat of the minor strike. And they just played for people. And they stayed on people's floors, they stayed on couches. It's an extraordinary expression of punk idealism. Um, one of the most inspiring ever.
And I speak as somebody who put on the first Fugazi show, you know, who worked with Fugazi forever, who's worked with Bad Brains, who's worked with, you know, you, you name like these extraordinary people who have been so inspirational to me. I cannot place any of those experiences higher than this in kind of my sense of what is ultimately punk. We are essentially out of time because we need to eat. Otherwise, we're going to be eating used books at the bookstore. But I didn't want to, I wanted to, if you wanted to say Well, as long as they have ketchup. <laughs> ketchup and mustard, that'll be all right. Uh, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything else, uh, Ralph, in a minute or two, and then we're going to have to take off uh, any addendum to what Mark said. Or Please any, do. Any parting words? Well, as I said, the struggle that went on then is the same one that goes on now, and the reason that this music matters and that this band matters is they can give us some guideposts to help negotiate this terrain along the way. And just because it flames out at a certain moment doesn't mean that that has to be the part of you that flames out as well. That's probably the best way I, I could put it. Perfect. I think both of you uh, gave a great uh, summation of it. I wish we had more time to talk, but thank you both for talking here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be handing the reins over to Frank Blank Moriarty to interview Ralph Lubutsky and Mark Anderson, uh, the co-authors of the book. Uh, it's a great honor for me to have both of them out here in Philly tonight and for Frank to be conducting this. Uh, we're going to do a conversation for about an hour between them and then we'll go over to some audience questions after that and then they'll be doing some signs. So thank you again for coming out and enjoy. Frank. Thank you, Joseph. Welcome, everybody. It's a nice, cool evening in beautiful Philadelphia tonight. And it's great to have Mark and Ralph here to uh, do a little talking about The Clash. Uh, I think the first thing I'd like to start off with is if Mark and Ralph, uh, if you could each talk a little bit about what led to you doing this book before we get into the book itself. Okay, I'll, I'll lead off. My introduction to The Clash came through a spread in Time Magazine, of all things, two-page spread. Time Magazine, which my dad read religiously, brought home every week, so I was sold before I had actually heard a note. Then I remember getting Give Him Enough Rope in the import edition of the first album, kind of all overlapping and really getting into it, and that's kind of where it stayed. My one and only time seeing the only band that matters came during this period that we're going to talk about, May 10th, 1984, MSU Auditorium. I went with a group of folks and we left thinking that night if they can get a fraction of that energy and fury on vinyl, this will be a record for the ages. And then of course we know the fallout, we know what happened. Cut the Crap comes out, I put it on the turntable, I'm calling my best friend, we're not taking any calls. It's going to be a religious experience. <laughs> Click. <laughs> well, what's this? We were as confused as anybody else, and that's where everything sat. But in the meantime, I had quite a nice collection of press clippings, which in the pre-internet era, that's what you went by, studying them like so many Egyptian hieroglyphics. So I went to England, 89, where it all starts, and I actually start tracking some of these folks down. That was one of my motivations for wanting to do a book in the first place. Track down those three replacement members, as they were called. Yep. Vince White, Nick Shepard, Pete Howard. And I wanted to ask, guys, what happened? Why didn't we get it? Why didn't we capture it? Well, what happened? 
And little by little, I started getting to some of the other key players in the Clash camp, people like uh, Raymond Jordan, their chief roadie and head of security, and uh, Johnny Green, their former road manager. So one of my trips to England, I took over a public phone booth for a whole week every day at 3 o'clock so I could speak to him for two hours a day. So tried to get somebody to take it on, took two years, tried to get somebody to back it, didn't for the usual boring reasons. And that's sort of where everything kind of sat, make periodic attempts throughout the 90s and 2000s to revive this with backing, without. And that's when Mark came into the picture and emailed me from out of the blue because he too was trotting down those same trails independently of me, of course. We didn't know one another. Came to me with a proposition, and I, would you help me with I said, what? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. What's all this about? Little by little, though, we talk and we find that it probably works better if whatever visions we have can be combined. And that way, that combined vision will be much more compelling probably than either of us would have done individually. Uh -huh. So we talk a little more. We find a little common ground. We agree we have a lot of common ground. We start working together. Mark, this is where you come in, I believe. All right. So uh, I will explain why we took a picture of you, besides the fact that we <laughs> like you. Um, it actually has an ideological reason with what we're talking about, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. What I am going to say is that I grew up on a farm and ranch in uh, rural Montana. It was 15 miles from the nearest town or paved road. Um, where I grew up, I grew up during the Vietnam War. I was like 10 years old when I voted, when I debated in my sixth grade class, sixth grade, four, eh, maybe I'm a little older than 10, maybe 11. I debated in favor of the Vietnam War. Then I did a little survey of my classmates after the debate, and my survey showed that I had won the debate. <laughs> I'm from Merle Haggard country, um, love it or leave it country. Um, and there's many things that are beautiful about that. I'm very proud of how I grew up. Um, my dad was a union activist. That's something that comes through in this book. It's a very important part of it. Um, but I was also a lost kid. Um, I didn't fit in there. Um, and uh, I remember as a teenager wondering if life was worth living. You know, and for the, the folks who have their kids here um, tonight, it means so much to me that you're here with your kids. I have two kids myself now. But when I was a kid, it was, it was really hard. I, I just felt like I... Had, I didn't know why I was here. Um, and my life started making a whole lot more sense one day in Williston, North Dakota at Service Drug when I opened up a magazine called Rock Scene and I saw the first picture I ever saw of the band, The Clash. Um, they were playing a song that they said was White Riot. Um, they had lyrics, it turned out not from that song, but from actually the B-side of that original single, White Riot. 1977, which said, no Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones in 1977. And between the words and between the energy that came off them just in a photograph, a black and white photograph in this crummy kind of protozine magazine called Roxine, I was like, I want this. I don't know what this is, but I want this. I want it like nothing else. Um, and they became my favorite band. And they were one of the bands, they weren't alone in this, but they were one of the bands that gave me the courage to leave where I grew up, Sheridan County. 
to go off and go to school because a lot of people where I grew up did not go to school. Maybe they went for a little bit just to have a break before they came back to what was real life, which was manual labor. Um, but they gave me the courage to go to school and to, to take classes I cared about, you know, not that we're going to get me some job and uh, become an activist to speak up. That's what I owe the clash. That's why I wrote this book because I owe something to them now. I owe something to all of you because as you'll discover, the title, We Are the Clash, which is taken from one of the songs in this very controversial last period of the clash, part of the point of that song is that the clash as a band of four or five people was almost nothing in the eyes of Joe Strummer. The clash included its audience. That's what it took to make this amazing idea come to life, to explode into reality. So when he wrote the song, people sometimes thought, and maybe actually their manager wanted him to think, uh, that this was a song saying, we are the clash, not anything that Mick Joes or Topper Head and the people who are kicked out of the band does. We are the clash. But that's not what the song meant for Strummer. I mean, I guess that might be part of it, but his broader point, his deeper point, his revolutionary point was that we, if you believe in what the clash was about, if you come to our concerts, you are part of what makes it possible. Together, we are the clash. And it's not even just a rock band. It is this sense that we're in a moment where everything's on the line. The clash, it could be the clash of good and evil or wrong and right or truth and falsehood. It's happening now and you're called to be part of that fight. Now, I was a teenager. Guess what happens? You grow up. And by the time 1983-84 rolled around, I had kind of, I had eventually, I, you, you, I don't know if any of you had this experience, you try to make your college years stretch a long time. I did my best. Because <laughs> I, I was really it. good. I was really good at being a student. I wasn't very good at anything else <laughs> as far as I could tell. And you know, I didn't have to worry too much about making money. I could just take these classes I loved. And so, but eventually, <laughs> you know, I graduated. Um, and so what do you do when you graduate? Take more school, of course. Graduate school. <laughs> and so I had done well as a student. And so I could, my advisors told me that um, based on my GPA, based on my test scores, I could go to any school I wanted to as long as I could pay for it. And that's a big if, you know. And I ended up with lots of student loans. They're paid off now. It just took 30 years. Take heart, any of you with student loans. <laughs> um, so I came to Washington, D.C., um, people may, some of you may know about the DC scene. If you, if you do, then you know something amazing happened there, and it's still happening there. Um, but I didn't come to DC to be part of that scene. I came there to kind of grow up and have a career. You know, to have success in the eyes of the world. You know, because I knew, even grad school at ends, I guess I could go for a PhD, but you know. And in the middle of that, I started hearing about something happening in this precious band of mine, who would, you know, they kind of go up and down. I mean, there's probably a lot of different opinions about how good Sandinista or Combat Rock are here, you know. Some, some people think it's great, some people think it's, oh my God, they totally lost their way, I couldn't even bear to listen to it. But they became very popular, they were very successful. And then I started hearing they kicked out Mick Jones, which on one sense made no sense at all, because 
So like, I thought they wanted to be popular, but he's the guy. He's the guy with the golden touch, right? The Midas guy. How could they kick him out? And then Joe Summer starts doing these interviews where he's talking about, you know, we thought we had succeeded, but we lost our way. We want to get back to what's real, our punk rock roots. And so we have a new band, and we're gonna go back to what is real, because we aren't done yet. Our story's not done yet. Our job is not done yet. When he started questioning those things, something clicked in me. I mean, it's, I'm sure it sounds silly. Like, how would you, how many of you take life advice from rock stars? <laughs> the wise, not a wise decision, probably. You gotta admit I have. But, you know, I, I am not ashamed to admit it. it. You know, they meant so much to me, and I was like, Strummer is saying that they lost their way. I kind of like, I kind of felt that um, for them. But then I was like, am I losing my way? You know, is this why I was here? Is this why my parents worked so hard? So I can go off and be a flunky in the Reagan administration? You know, the lower echelon of the American ruling class? Is that why I was put here? And that period of the clash changed my life. It, for the second time, punk rock revolutionized me. And it's because of what they were saying and doing at that time that I was open to be part of the DC punk scene, the revolution summer era, all that came from that. So I wrote this book because I thought it was wrong that this part of history was being erased. Not just by critics who didn't like Cut the Crap, of which there are many. But by the Clash themselves, Joe Strummer, you know, they put out a big box set, uh, you know, sound system. Nothing from Cut the Crap there. Nothing from this period. Their big pink tabletop book, 120 shows. This version of the Clash did not a one in there. Westway to the World, nothing. I thought this was time that mattered. I thought someone should dig it out whatever it was and you know I had the same sense that Ralph did I was confused by the cut the crap record I was so jazzed by what they were talking about and the bootlegs I was hearing of their performances and then you get this record with drum machine and synthesizer and wrangling with the punk guitar and Schrummer seems as passionate ever but what what in the world is very confusing It's very challenging that's another word that's useful for it so I wanted to know I wanted to know what had happened like Ralph did I interviewed Joe Strummer in 1989. In a way, that's the beginning of this book. Um, I learned about what Ralph had already done. We decided we were going to come together to try to tell a story that needed to be told. And not just because we're punk rock fans, you know, Clash fans. We are. But because we believe in what the Clash were about, which is what? Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. Now, they're human beings. Any punk rocker knows that. If you're up on the stage, it doesn't make you any more superhuman than if you're standing, you know, in the old place. And so we wanted to tell the story of the clash in that last two years in the way that it should be told, in the context of the politics. Because as it turns out, as this was happening with the clash, and they're a great endeavor. I don't I hope it's this is not a spoiler, but their great endeavor kind of falls flat on its face runs right into a brick wall. But so does the revolutionary aspirations of so many of us. Because during the time we're talking about, 
Reagan and Thatcher win. They break through. Thatcher defeats the miners. Reagan wins re-election. And we are living in the world that Reagan and Thatcher made. We think that's an important story to tell, not just because we were touched by this era of the clash and it changed our life, but because what happened then with the clash, with the politics, absolutely connects to what's happening right now. And of course, unless you live in a coffin with earplugs and eye coverings, you know we are in a very dire situation at this moment. Scary beyond belief. I speak as somebody who lived through the, the Nixon administration. You know, it was an activist for Reagan and for Bush. What we're facing is profoundly dangerous. And our, ass, our assertion is that what happened back in 83 through 86 with the clash and with the politics around them is invaluable for us knowing what to do right now. That's a big claim. But we stand behind it. So, and thank you for the applause. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> And I'm sorry, I talk a lot. That's all right, Mark. You're supposed to be talking. Um, I, again, if I get boring, start scowling, start throwing stuff. There's lots of books around here, but actually don't throw the books. They're very precious. Uh, if you find anything else, then you can throw it. If you brought your tomatoes. Tomatoes. Fine. Throw it at them. <laughs> um, well, two significant aspects of the clash, which you stress in the book, uh, which I'd, I'd like to just quickly illustrate from my own interactions with the band. Um, one is their ability to interf uh, influence. Uh, I first saw the clash in September of 79 when they played at the Walnut Street Theater. And that afternoon, I had my uh, Give Them Enough Rope promotional poster, which I'd hoped to get signed. So I went down to the Benjamin Franklin Hotel on Chestnut Street Walked in the door hoping I could find maybe one of them, and all four of them are sitting here <laughs> on the couch. <laughs> Chatting away, just hanging out. So uh, I got all four of them to sign the poster. Strummer was the last to sign, and he very helpfully drew arrows from the signatures to the buzzards to identify which buzzard was which. <laughs> but um, I ended up speaking with Nick Jones for a while, and uh, we were talking about guitars and guitar playing, and I was lamenting how I had seen Jimi Hendrix and all these other great guitarists, but had never taken up guitar myself. And he, he looked at me and said, well, why don't you then? I'm no better than you are. And that was when the light bulb went off. And I think that kind of interaction, along with things like Patti Smith saying, we created it, let's take it over. These were kind of influential things that caused a change in perspective among followers of these bands and these artists. And in my own case, it led to me playing guitar for the last 40 years in a number of bands and uh, a number of different uh, compact disc releases and records and everything. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect which they stress in the book about the band is the breaking down of barriers between the band and the audience. And a few years later, uh, the Clash were playing at Bonds uh, during a, an infamous run of two weeks in New York City. And I was up at one of the early shows and went back to the hotel they were staying at, the Gramercy Park, and took some photographs outside of Joe Strummer and his sweet Gabriella as they were coming down the sidewalk. Um, I went back up a few days later. The pictures came out really nicely, so I got them processed. I thought maybe Strummer might want to have them or Gabrielle might want them. So uh, I walk in the door of the Gramercy Park, and standing there is the baker, who was the Clash's, one of the Clash's key road people. And he wrote the foreword to the book of Mark and Ralph's book, We Are the Clash. And lives not far from Philadelphia now. Yeah. I didn't know that. He lives in Audubon. Ah, does he? Oh. Yeah. 
Well, I went up to the baker and I said, hey, baker, I got these pictures. I think Joe might want them. And I'm expecting Baker to go, okay, give me the pictures, you know, thanks. Baker goes, right, I'll go get him. Wait here. <laughs> goes up in the elevator, and a minute later, Strummer comes off the elevator. And that shows, I think, the interaction of, like, at that time, The Clash were on the cover of Rolling Stone. They were one of the biggest bands in the world. And there was no barrier between fan and band. It was just... An interaction, you know, Baker goes up and says, some guy's got pictures for you, and Joe goes, oh good, I'll go see what they are, comes down. And really, forever after that, every time I ran into Strummer, he always remembered me, he always went, hey, Moriarty, you can hear him now. So I think uh, it's it's a unique interaction that that band had with their fans, and they lived that, those aspects, which, you know, a lot of other bands will pay lip service to, but don't really come through with it. But getting into the, set, the setup of the book and the formation of the Clash Mark II, as we might call them, uh, one of the things you state is the band's vision was made even clearer by Sandinista, which may be the first time I've ever heard clearer in Sandinista in the same sentence. <laughs> but from there, we went up into the recording of, um, of Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg, which was Mick Jones' vision of the double album, which then became Combat Rock after Mick Jones was excised from that project. And I'd like to know your thoughts on Rap Patrol versus Combat Rock as musical entities. I mean, Jones's mix is pretty fascinating, could potentially be viewed as possibly even more political than the result that came out as the work of Glenn Johns. But I'd like to know how you feel about that particular album and the way it, it played out. One thing I'll just say right off, just to explain my statement about, or our statement about Sandinista. The, breath of their ambition became more clear because the clash they weren't just like we want all the riff rockers no it's like they want everything they want the whole world of rebel music that's what they're aiming for with sandinista so that's kind of what the the ambition becomes so clear and it's embracing ambition sometimes the results are not overwhelming but but they love side six to death on the if music could talk for it it's still so oh, really? great yes Yes, and I personally, I didn't have an issue with the quirkiness of it. I loved it because, again, I come from a very partisan Republican region of southwest Michigan, and everybody's into things like Sammy Hagar and stuff like that. And I think, yeah, you're going to put on something like Mensford Hill, which is really <laughs> something about England backwards, basically. And they it said, we're going to put it on, we're going to charge you, this, and you're going to love it. I kind of had to admire the balls of that in a strange sort of way. But we did love it. Well, and, and the, the way it works is that it's three albums for the price, price of, of one. Because if they're just doing it and then charging you a triple record price, then you'd be like, you're ripping me off. But no, it's like they're giving up their own royalties to make this happen. So right under that. And you want to do Rat Patrol versus... Yeah, yeah, because I, that was one of the first cassettes I got as a bootleg okay so I had the chance to shop and compare because combat rock I remember of course I ran out and automatically bought it like the faithful whereas I loved Sandinista for that cinematic breadth of ambition the quirkiness combat rock struck me as sort of a watered-down attempt to do that not as compelling to me I would agree side one works great for the most part side two Remember when my friend and I in high school were listening to it, put it on again. It's going to be a religious experience, blah, blah. We get through about half of Sean Flynn. We look at it and go, well, I guess they're not playing that on tour, are they? <laughs> so that wasn't missed. But the Rap Patrol from Fort Bragg in some ways is more interesting 
there's a little more depth to the infield, as it were, and there's also, I think, a couple of songs that really should have gotten on. The Beautiful People, I think, is a great song. Kill Time, if they'd worked on it a bit more, might have turned into something versus some of the stuff we got. But having said that, I can also see why they call Glenn Johns in, because to be quite honest, it's not an album that would have lifted them to that level of stardom that the Glenn Johns version basically did. So I can see why they had him do some of the radical surgery that he ended up doing on that record. Now it's interesting because in that same time frame we have Raiden and Thatcher, who of course are probably equal characters in your book to yes. The Clash themselves. They were kind of dismissed as fringe figures almost at that point, but they became almost partners in crime. Now, we compare to the current situation with Trump, who seems uh, too erratic to partner really with anybody, <laughs> but what do you think was the bond between Reagan and Thatcher? Was it, would you describe it as a common vision for global economy, or would you say there was something else at work that caused them to see things along parallel lines? I would say their shared love of monetarism probably is the most obvious tie in the sense both elevate the free market, their faith in the free market as the final decider of what sticks or what doesn't. I would also say their apparent aversion or more than apparent aversion to unions, again as a counterweight to corporate power, they seem to take a much more forgiving outlook toward it. And so hence you have the air traffic controllers that get fired here under Reagan and then of course you have Thatcher moving later on against the miners. I think that's a pretty obvious view. Both of them also are expressing a strong anti-communist view of things which doesn't necessarily square with what's actually happening on the ground, say in Central America, for instance. What, what would you feel was the, was the attitudes in the UK as Thatcher ascended and the, the turning of that society from kind of a socialist direction or at least the first steps of that into one of privatization and, fr and free market? I'd say I'd give a two-part answer to that because if you look at if you just look at the press clippings from that time in the music press, the attitude is one of absolute horror and incomprehension. From the uh, apparent breakdown of efficiency under the Callahan-led labor government to this, people asking, how did we get to this? Then you fast forward later on, like I know when I went to England those times, I also talked with quite a lot of people that supported her quite strongly because they felt she had made it possible for mid-level people, so to speak, to rise up, or she had made it more possible for small business to do its thing. Right. And I also heard from people that had expressed a lot of disagreeable racial stuff as well, that really didn't like the idea of a multiracial society and felt that she would put a necessary break on that. So she definitely had her fans and admirers within certain sectors of society, just depending who you happen to encounter. Now, Mark, at the same time in the United States, we have the rise of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and the roots that have led to the Tea Party movement and to the rise of his base, which we are now dealing with the consequences of today. Um, what, what do you feel were the things that possibly led to that and to the swelling, the ground cell of support for that? Well, I think part of what you have to look at, I mean, first of all, there's clearly a backlash against actual progress. People are not ready for progress to happen in terms of 
the breakthroughs of the civil rights movement, women's movement, gay rights movement, people are scared. Things are changing too much. So that creates a base of support for a right-wing counter-revolution. People are scared. Certainly where I grew up, I understand that well. The other side of it, though, is there is a failure by the left. Um, I would say that uh, the labor government did not perform well. If it hadn't so catastroph catastrophically failed, Margaret Thatcher probably never would have been prime minister. Um, likewise, I think it's a little unfair to say that Carter failed in that same way, but Carter definitely ran into some big trouble. The Iran hostage situation, the rise of inflation, um, you know, there were, there were failures that the other side has to account for and we have to learn from. Also, let me take dead aim at one of my big inspirations, the counterculture, you know, the 60s <laughs> counterculture. I was really inspired by it later on. At the time, where I grew up, we viewed it as a direct assault on us. Like everything about us was bad. We were squares, we were corny, we were dumb. We were like beasts of burden, basically. And yet, the feeling at that time was, fuck you. Oh, sorry for the kids. Um, <laughs> I get carried away. Um, who do you think makes your food? Who do you think makes your clothes? Who then builds these buildings, you know? That's us. You're, you're kicking us in the face. You're telling us we're dumb. Well, we don't want anything to do with you. The beginning of the culture war in the United States, which will be very skillfully uh, manipulated, exploited by the right. Now, there is a crucial element to note here. We talk about how Reagan and Thatcher lay the, the groundwork for Trump. How does that work? Because actually, just so people know, Trump is a very different animal than Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher. Because what Trump represents is actually, in a certain sense, an attack on that legacy. He is not a free market guy. He's all about crony capitalism. He's totally excited, you know, for, you know, trying to pick who's the winners and the losers here. Particularly if he can make it him being the winner. That's very different than the, the Reagan and Thatcher vision. They had this almost religious faith in the free market. I think it's a misplaced faith. But how does that, how do these two things come together to create the space for Brexit and for Trump? A failure on the left. A failure on the left. Because guess what? How does the left react? You know, and I'm talking about the electoral left, although there's <coughs> the other, the further left who's against electoral politics has his own contribution to the problem. What happens? How does Bill Clinton get elected? How does Tony Blair get elected? Those of you who are like, oh, who are you talking about? <laughs> okay, Bill Clinton, former president. Well, you probably heard about him. And what's uh, okay? Let's not go into a that. few different. The concepts. young woman's name. <laughs> God bless her. Um, and God, don't be quite so nice to Bill. But um, Tony Blair, you know, had the Labour was the socialist part of the socialist party in Britain or one of them, and they actually had a great deal of power. How did they get back to power? By becoming a kinder, gentler Thatcherism. How did Clinton win? By adapting the, Rep the Democratic Party in a way that could outflank the Republicans. 
It's very clever in electoral terms. You're able to win, but at what cost? Because I'll tell you, if you look at how... Now, there is a portion of Donald Trump's support and a portion of the support for Brexit that is, you know, you could say irredeemable. That whatever, whether it's racial animosity or just fear, whatever it is, they're going to support them. Or class interests, like the rich folks, they want... They want more. But how did these win? Trump won in Pennsylvania. Trump won in Wisconsin. Trump won by convincing working class people somehow that he cared more for them than the Democrats. Now, where I grew up, again, it's conservative. But my family were New Deal Democrats. When our neighbors started voting for Richard Nixon or other Republicans, my mom spit in the dirt. Because she's like, they've forgotten where they came from. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal saved us during the Great Depression. I don't want anything to do with them. But guess what? If the Democrats make it, the working class people feel like they don't care, why would they trust? Why would they trust Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump? To me, it seems crazy. But I understand the hurt, the sense of betrayal. Now, who's to blame? Well, not just the Democrats, it's Ronald Reagan too. He set the stage for this. He convinced them that he was out to help them. Well, he was throwing them away, like Thatcher was with the working class folks. Where did, where did Brexit win? In a lot of the areas, they knew certain areas were gonna go for Brexit. What they didn't expect was that labor strongholds, former coal mining areas and other working class areas, went big for Brexit. That's the margin of victory, just as the margin of victory for Trump is there. There's a lesson for us. If we just cast aspersions on the people who vote for these things because we think they're bad or crazy or stupid, okay, we can do that, but will we win? And that's the crucial question, because we gotta win. That's so much in the balance. The world is in the balance right now. We cannot afford to make the mistakes we made back then. And I'll say one last mistake. How did Thatcher get this? And you're like, what the hell? I was here for class. What is he talking about all this English politics? I don't even know who. Ah. Okay, I apologize. I apologize for this, but let me make this point. If you go back to the politics, how does Thatcher get in a position where she can defeat the miners' union, this glorious, this proud union that had over, turned over a couple of conservative governments in the decade before? How does she get the parliamentary majority to change the laws to stack the decks so heavily against the miners that she can crush them into the dirt? Because she won the election in 1983 in a landslide fashion. With... 42% of the vote. How does that happen? How do you get a veto-proof majority in your parliament with 42%? It happens because the other side split. There were two parties. The Labour Party split. There were two parties. They took away from each other, allowed Thatcher to win. My God, what a titanic failure of the opposition to Thatcher. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not sure how you figure out how to make these things work. But if you divide 
the people, when you're up against these kinds of forces, you do them the biggest favor you possibly can. And we must not do that. That's the end of my discussion on British politics. Okay. Well, back to the clash. Um, <laughs> the clash played the huge US Festival uh, in May of 1983, which was a gigantic rock festival that was given on the West Coast by Steve Wozniak, who was one of the founders of Apple Computers. And I'm curious if you feel, I mean, obviously, we know that there was uh, some backstage conflicts with the clash making demands to have donations made to different organizations or entities. And uh, do you think part of it had to do with Wozniak's attitude that he was putting on a good time for the people at a big, gigantic party, which Strummer, I think, kind of took as an insult being equated with Van Halen and a lot of the other bands that really didn't particularly have much to say. Do you think that was something that uh, affected his attitude about that? Well, actually, Van Halen mm -hmm. has a lot to say. <laughs> It's kind of the, the great message. One is, what's one of the great political songs of American rock? I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. It's the politics of hedonism. <laughs> Van Halen, they got him. So my answer to that is, um, first of all, what is the clash doing there? That's a very fraught question within the band. Because some people are like, this is craziness. Why would we be part of this thing? Cosmo Vinyl later years just said festivals are a hippie's dream and a punk's nightmare. And that's partly because he understands that the mass character of those festivals makes things so anonymous that you're like, the only way you can tell who's on the stage is by the TV screens. So why aren't you just back home watching it in your living room? Well, it's kind of happening and you know maybe there's more drugs there, or, you know, whatever crazy stuff happening. Fair enough. But if the punk thing is about like we're right here together you know there's no difference between me up here okay i'm a loud mouth i'm older than most of y'all i dress in a strange way what's this black thing he's some sort of i don't know whatever satanist you have maybe who knows um well don't tell my mom i said that she'd be very upset um we have it recorded oh my gosh mom i didn't mean it no okay back in front so that happens in a small context where you're next to each other, and the, and the message that Strummer actually tries to give from the stage, which is, hey, you're looking here, you're a quarter of a million people here looking at the stage and expecting something profound. But the people who are on the stage now, and the people who came before, the people who come afterward, he says, are nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Can you understand that? He's trying to reach this mass audience with a punk message which is, I'm just like you. Don't look to me for the answers, look inside. So, I think part of their problem with the US Festival was that Wozniak is basically throwing a big party, and later on, Strummer said something, it's like, you know, if you're throwing a beer bash, okay, call it a beer bash. But if you're calling it us, you know, unison like somehow it's a we're all together it's like the the woodstock of the 80s then give me a break you're just prettying up your beer party with some sort of empty rhetoric and the clash you know and they they got stuck on this uh skewer themselves you know it's like you talk this big stuff well what are you doing and so that was their that was their desire to challenge 
him to like make this real. And they ended up giving some money to uh, a camp for disadvantaged kids. Um, but guess what happened next? Somebody smart pointed out, hey Clash, revolutionary rockers, how much money are you making at this? Turns out to be half a million dollars. Why aren't you giving some money? Clash are walking in dangerous territory. And that's part of what makes them exciting, because here they are. They're walking out in this, this big arena, and they're challenging people in fundamental ways, but they're not exactly consistent. And a postscript to that, which I remember Raymond uh, telling me when I interviewed him, they couldn't take most of the money out of America anyway for tax reasons. There's always a hitch, isn't there? Yes, there is. And I remember he, he told me, he said he had an argument even with Joe. He said, well, what about me? Well, I want to give some money to the black cause in England. What about that? So that was one of the ironies, that that rich prize didn't even apparently get to be theirs. And then he got into legal battles when they kicked Mick Jones out, so it really got messy. <laughs> well, that's, that's where I would go next with this, is in the wake of the US Festival, there was <coughs> tremendous upheaval within the Clash realm. Uh, Bernie Rhodes, who had, been, who had basically assembled or brought the, the pieces together of the band in the first place and acted as their manager, had been gone for a couple of years. Now he came back at the time that Mick Jones left the band. They bring in these three new players. Well, one was already there. Right. Pete Howard was already the yes. drummer. Now, Bernie Rhodes, you describe in the book Bernie Rhodes having a platoon mentality for the Clash where no soldier is irreplaceable and the objective itself is paramount. Now this is a big change, but at the same time, Joe Strummer now has been seeing people from around the world, which is letting him feel that his message is resonating far beyond just England or parts of the United States. How does all this work in the, the attitude that's established for this new iteration of the Clash? Well, you hit right on it when we talk about the idea of the platoon, this gang of, this commando gang of rebel rockers that are going to take the hill. And there are certain lines that, of course, are laid down. The Clash are anti-drug, for instance. That's a, that becomes a big one. And, of course, you hear Strummer in the interview starting to articulate, we're going back to basics, we're going back to how we started out, our look, our sound, our approach. You know, and, and sometimes, and one of the criticisms, of course, that gets leveled of this era, some people say he almost came across at times like an angry drill sergeant, because in the older versions of the Clash, there was always this kind of strain of zany, Beatlesque humor at the band that ran through it, and I think that was one of the key factors, actually, that connected them to people. But in this particular era, we don't seem to see nearly as much of that. Mm -hmm because Joe's got this idea, and Bernie, we've, we're on a mission. We're doing this, that, and the other. We're, we're doing a course correction. And that means whatever it takes to get that result, we're going to do. And so obviously, and certainly in some of the chats that we had with Vince, Nick, and Pete, that's one of their central complaints, I would say, if they have one, that there was not as much regard taken for them as people as opposed to the idea or the aesthetic or the ideology, the mission. So that becomes a big uh, running theme in the background. But again, we're doing it this way. We don't have time. The world could go a nuclear holocaust any minute. We've got to get out and we've got to get the job done. And so hence they go back to California almost 
what, within six months of the US Festival? Yep. The idea of we're going to finish this business that we started, and then we're gonna storm the towns and take America one town at a time. And so, of course, it gets a and little Europe, more complicated. And, and Europe and Britain, right. And then they were planning a global tour Though, the end. not many people realize this, but that particular American tour that they did was actually, I think, their most extensive. It was almost, what, two and a half months? Two and a half months. Forty cities. So, April, May tour. Yeah, and that's where I saw March, them. April, May. So no one could accuse them, certainly at this point, of being lazy or self-indulgent or just laying back and waiting for the royalties to flow or the inspiration to come in. There was a definite seriousness in what we would almost call this boot camp approach. And the hope being, of course, Joe and certainly Bernard, that we're going to correct the course and once we've got the music to back it up, people will then see what it is that we mean, what we're talking about. So, uh, first I'll correct your history just a little bit. Bernard Rhodes. How many people here knew the name Bernard Rhodes before you came in? A few of you. Okay. <laughs> Bernard Rhodes, essentially a member of the Clash. He is the person with the vision for the band in the first place. In a certain sense, he crafts the persona that Joe Strummer inhabits so amazingly um, and inspired so many of us. He is not just some money-grubbing manager. He is the central visionary of the Clash. He is a co-founder of the Clash. Doesn't make him a nice person. <laughs> Quite definitely not the nicest of people, but a revolutionary. That's what he's aiming at. He actually came back before the US Festival. He came back right um, after what's well, kind of in the period between London Calling and Santa Anise. 81. 81. Mid-81. Um, and he is actually instrumental, ironically, more than the professional managers who had tried to manage. The Clash were very hard band to manage. <laughs> the professional managers who tried to manage them for a couple of years um, pretty much failed, and they did whatever they wanted. And they did crazy anti-commercial stuff, like selling a three-record set for the price of one, which meant they forego royalties on the first 200,000 sold. I mean, man, that, who does that? Crazy people, right? Or crazy idealistic people. That's part of why they meant so much to so many of us, right? Because it showed, like, they didn't care so much about the money. They cared about something higher. Stromer, Simonon were very concerned that they were losing their way. Um, how do they get right? This is still with Mick Jones there. Bring back the person who's missing in the mix. Bernard Rhodes. He had gotten fired because he was a pain in the neck. He got fired back in like 78, right? 78. Late 78. Spring so of 78. He, so it's like maybe two years he's with him and he's gone for two years. Then he comes back and he helps break them in America, the biggest market in the world. How did he do it? Who knows? Well, right before um, then there was the European tour and one of the things he specifically did was he booked them into bigger places. And he also did, he was the architect behind the Bonds thing. They did a similar thing in, uh, in Paris. However it happened... There, there was some sort of alchemy between the opposing poles of the band, which are Bernard Rhodes and Mick Jones. And the others are kind of in the middle. At one point, Simonon and Strummer side with Jones and kick out Rhodes. Another point, they band together and muscle Jones into accepting him back. So this sets up a very, very volatile situation because Jones didn't want him back. Rhodes knew it. Who's going to win this power struggle within the band? It's in this context that they decide they're going to 
go on a stadium tour with the Who, backing them. Very controversial in the band. The Baker, who was such a crucial helper in this work, in the writing of this book, in terms of giving his perspective and reading what we're writing and letting us know if it rang true to his uh, experience of the band. Because he knows the band as much as anybody, up to and including Joe Strummer, because he's there from the very beginning. He's there before Topperhead. He's there after Topperhead. You know, he's a key part of it. He didn't like what they were doing. He felt like they were compromising themselves. Why do you want to go out and play for the Who's audience? Go on, build your own audience. Why play this crazy big festival put up by this this uh, this uh, computer guru guy who's selling this bill of goods? If you think it's a bill of goods, why are you bringing your people to it? Um, but Rhodes and and then key element of this too, almost in the band as well. Cosmo vinyl, really crucial. You don't understand The Clash unless you know the role of Bernard Rhodes and Cosmo Vinyl. Because The Clash is more than a band. Um, it, it, obviously, it is for those of us who love them, but practically, it's also more than a band. It's, it's these other people, non-musician people. They are struggling with the meaning of success, at which point Mick Jones is making himself unbearable to them. Um, Jones was acting like a rock star from their point of view. You can argue whether he was or wasn't. That's a reasonable argument to have. Even I, in Montana, picked up on this. I remember hearing he got fired. Mm, makes sense. Because he's kind of like embarrassing the clash. You know, getting arrested for cocaine possession, acting like Keith Richards, you know. That would make sense. Well, what do you do? You just kicked out two and a half, the writers of two and a half of your three hit singles. It's commercial insanity. The record company told them so. So whatever you think of this last period of The Clash, they didn't do it for money. Because if they wanted money, guess what? Just stick with what's proven to work. Replicate your formula. Do Combat Rock Part 2. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's what they could have done. But they tried to do something else. Um, so, to get back to, uh, to your question, I think Rhodes needs more respect in this. Even if Rhodes is a villain in a certain sense with the ultimate destruction of this, it's, it's a really complicated thing because without him, there is no clash. Um, and I say that absolutely 100% sure. Um, but the clash couldn't exist forever. He made certain of that. What does this all mean? Good question. Now there are two specific, um, and I would say fundamental uh, political aspects that are going on at the same time in this book. One played out over a period of months, and that was the minor strike in England which the Clash were a little late getting into doing benefits for and perhaps maybe were seen as not as supportive as they could have been. The other thing though is more, a little more behind the scenes was the Stanislav Petrov incident of uh, September of 1983. Uh, we had been following a policy of mutually assured destruction in competition with the Soviet Union and it was Reagan's stance was one of peace through power. And um, I wonder if you could, since it was 35 years ago, and probably some of our audience weren't even alive then, and others probably aren't even, even aware of what happened at the time, 
Could you talk a bit about that one particular incident and how that might have influenced some of the way Strummer approached some of his uh, lyric approaches later on, perhaps? Okay, well, first thing is, um, do you mind if I'll, I'll try to be quick? Okay. No problem. I'll try to be quick. Most of you probably have no clue who Stanislav Petrov is. In fact, nobody knew him at the time. What happened in September of 1983 is that the, because of the rise of Reagan, which is partly due to actions the Soviets took, let's be fair, invasion of Afghanistan made Jimmy Carter look weak, like Carter didn't respond appropriately tough, and same with the Iran situation. So Reagan is like talking tough. People are like, okay, we need a, a tough guy leader. So, so they kind of went to him. But... Reagan was very strident in his rhetoric. It made people believe that war with the Soviet Union was almost inevitable. So people are scared. Soviets were scared. They believed that the U.S. was pursuing a first strike capability. In other words, mutual assured destruction. Here we are, we're going off into this stuff again. But that just means no one's going to start a nuclear war. Why? Because if one starts, the other will respond. You're going to both be destroyed. It's no point. Just don't even get started. Scary stuff. But it did kind of keep the peace. You know, at least from nuclear holocaust. Not from the other wars like Central America or Afghanistan or whatever. So if the Soviets believe we're preparing a first strike, that means they are very scared and they're getting ready to respond. Launch on warning. Meaning if the U.S. missiles are coming, We've got to strike back. So Stanislav Petrov, who no one knew his name until many years later, was a mid-level functionary in the Soviet nuclear um, command. He was in charge this night, midnight in September of 1983, when this new warning system they had showed that missiles were coming at the Soviet Union from the United States. His job is very clear. His job is to report this to superiors and allow them to decide how to respond. Because within 20 minutes, the country could be incinerated. Something didn't feel right to him about it. It was like, why is it? It was like one, two, three, four, five <coughs> missiles. Why isn't it 100 missiles if it's an actual strike? And he knew at that point that the Soviets were so scared of what the US was going to do that if he reported this, it might lead them to fire their missiles, which would, if it's not, if it's a false warning, Nuclear holocaust is created by a mistake. So he did not report the warning, even though he knew that put him on the line. And guess what? It was a false warning. Now, and fortunately, the world was not destroyed. Stanislav Petrov, later on, known as the man who saved the world. Um, now, how does this connect? Joe Strummer didn't know about Petrov. But what he did know is that we were at the brink of war, especially after the shooting down of the Korean airliner KL-007. Um, there is a period of two months there in late 83 when nuclear war, analysts now believe, was the closest it's ever been in the history of the Cold War. Now, Strummer didn't know this, the specifics, but anybody who was watching closely knew it was an extremely dangerous moment. And that led him to this sense, and the others, to the sense that this is a decisive moment. The clash cannot go away now. Because it was a possibility. If you don't like Mick Jones, maybe there's no, Mick, no clash without the Mick Jones. Well, why doesn't the clash stop? If 
For them, it wasn't an option. We have a job to do. Now is a moment of utmost importance for this reason and for others. We have a job to do. We must do it. Um, so I think his reading of the situation was accurate. No one knew this. There was actually another incident where all the nuclear wars actually almost sparked again um, with some war games that happened. But the point is, you have to, when you're the president of the United I don't know if this will be relevant to right now. I'm not sure. But when you're the president of the United States, you actually have to be kind of careful about what you say. Because people might actually take you seriously and bad things will happen. Well, that's nice to hear with him on his way to the NATO meetings right now. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank <laughs> nice very and reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know. We got, we got the most level-headed leaders around. Yeah. Well, I'm very smart, very diplomatic. I, I do want to get to some questions from the audience. Yes, that's here, what I was going to say. I, to ask I you don't want them to be bored. I want to ask you one last thing, yes. and then we'll turn it over to some questions. Late in the book, you stressed that Joe was a committed but flawed man. I'd like to just read one little paragraph here from the book. No human being has the strength to take that stand every day with untiring consistency. Strummer's foibles described herein recall Phil Oak's famous disclaimer, I could never be as moral as my songs. Still, while knowing that words, including his own, could often be all too cheap, Strummer refused to surrender, continuing to believe that time can march with charging feet. And I think um, many of us feel in these days that we're living through right now, there's times when you have to take a step back just for your own mental health. Things are so crazy now that it's, it's difficult to remain plugged in all the time. But for someone who was fronting a band that so many people revered and even looked up to for answers, that must have been an exhausting and enormous challenge and a lot of pressure. Can you sum up basically how you feel Joe dealt with that? And did that type of pressure directly lead to the conclusion of the second version of The Clash? How did he deal with it? Well, to varying degrees, one of them being drinking a lot of alcohol. <laughs> I've said that you could make an argument that he's essentially a high-functioning alcoholic during much of this period, and I think as Marcus alluded to, uh, there were times, of course, when he couldn't do without cigarettes and pot, so his anti-drug vision didn't extend completely all the way. But there were various times, if you look through all the different interviews and appearances, he sort of seems to zigzag. He goes up and down as, as the mood takes him. And, I couldn't even imagine what that would be like, not being at that level of success, where everybody looks at you as the man with the answers, how we should deal with this, that, and the other. And of course, at one point, as we document in the book, uh, he just went off to Spain. Mm -hmm. He takes off to Spain for an extended period of time because there's so many things coming on top of him. His uh, father has just died. His father, of course, died during the UK tour, and then, of course, his mother is beginning to get ill with cancer. So he's got all that stuff in his mind in the background. And he's become a dad, too. He's become a dad. So all of this is going on at the same time that the band is trying to do its thing. And of course, I do think in a sense, yes, it did lead to the end of the, of the band because in some ways it's appropriate. It stopped when he said so. When he called Vince, Nick, and Pete to his house that fall of 85 and said, I can't do this anymore, here's a thousand pounds, get on with your lives. So I would say it's a very mixed record in that sense, but it doesn't necessarily invalidate the art or the songs. 
Well, and what I would say is that part of, the, <coughs> if, if you read the book, and I, by the way, I really do appreciate you taking your time to be here. Um, this book matters so much to us, and, and, and if you do read it, I hope it moves you. I hope it feels like it's worth your time. Um, we, we put everything into it to make it that way, which is how, again, this is what we learned from how The Clash tried to do that. It's, you know, it, it's the right way to do things, like full on, or not at all. Um, how did Strummer react? It's a terrible time for him. He's taken on this huge task. Because if you know, again, to give Mick Jones his due, he is extraordinarily important to the band musically. Um, and who is going to replace him? Well, Strummer felt like he had to. Strummer had so much weight on his shoulders. He was aiming for the stars. And, you know, as I said, it's like he's reaching up like this and I go, like flat in your face. And a lot of what's in this book is not very happy. Um, Joe Strummer is one of my all-time heroes. He is a human being, and this is how we portray him here. You see the grand aspirations, you see the commitment, you also see how he's struggling. And he struggles very hard. The words that the baker used for what happens is psychic meltdown. Um, and everything's on his shoulders. Could it have worked if he had been able to stay strong? It could have worked. That's what we believe. That's why there's poignancy in this. Because we think that what he was talking about and what Simonon was talking about and Rose and Vinyl, they were right. The Clash had lost their way and this was a chance to redeem themselves. And even though it's kind of crazy the process they go through to get the people who come into the band, maybe they got the right people. It could have worked. But he wasn't strong enough. And who among us would have been strong enough? I don't know. I've never been in his shoes. So we try to tell the truth. Again, I would say that's a clash, you know, imperative. You know, tell the truth. You know, if we have to face reality to revolutionize it. Um, so we, we tell the truth, and it's sad sometimes. But I think it's what he would have wanted. Because we're trying to be real. We're trying to do it with sympathy because, again, he's a human being. We're all human beings. But we would waste your time as a reader if we didn't present it just as we see it. I'd just like to say that having read the book, there are a lot, so many aspects that we haven't had any time to cover on this. Uh, the Clash did a fascinating tour across England, busking, mm. busking, <coughs> right, with just acoustic guitars. One of the great punk moments of all time. Yeah, generating the money they needed each day to get on to the next place and crashing at fans' houses, and that's uh, a really fascinating period. But I think uh, it's a great book. I think uh, anyone interested in the clash or even in the political uh, temper at that time would find it interesting. And uh, at this point, let's uh, open it up to any questions anybody has. All right, there we go. Uh, how uh, much did Mick Jones ever, ever buy into the political beliefs of Joe Strummer? Was he ever, like, uh, you know, committed the first few albums and then decided he didn't want to follow it? I think Marcus Gray's statement in Route 19 is a pretty fair summary. Mick styled himself of the left, but not necessarily in it. <laughs> so I think a lot of the style and aesthetics of it appealed to him. I don't think he was ever quite as sold on the theory of it. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, I, Ralph and I may disagree a little bit on here. One of the, this is one of the questions that I asked. 
Because there's a famous, you remember those first words that, that the first words I ever heard attributed to The Clash, other than the title White Riot? No, Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones in 1977. This is like a revolutionary rallying cry, like, bring down the old, you know, we're the new, this is the real thing, forget about that. Asked in that very year by a couple fanzine writers, including the later famous Billy Bragg, who we interviewed for this, Mick Jones was asked about that, and he says, he kind of laughed about it, and says, well, you got to say those kind of things, don't you? <laughs> Which makes you think he's kind of cynical about it. I think that's too simple, though. I think that's too simple. Because uh, the Baker and Johnny Green both talked about, like, that he took the politics really seriously. That at least at certain parts of the band, he didn't go out partying after the shows. He came back, he was reading books. You know? I think, I think the politics meant a lot to him, and still do. But did he want to live them all the way? I think, I think being a rock star also had a great appeal to him in the way it didn't have to the others. And so it was, that was his own conflict. But did he feel that it needed to be an integral part of the band? Like, did he feel that the identity I think the he bought into the politics? concept. I think he bought into the concept. You can tell by his later bands, which are considerably less political, not, although not lacking. In, there's some politics in there, but it's not front and center like with a clash. He's a political person, but uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. And, you know, I was talking to Cosmo Vinyl, and uh, who was, again, he was kind of the manager of The Clash. He was a spokesperson, almost to the same level of, of Joe Stromer speaking for The Clash. And we were talking about, because at the beginning, you know, this We Are The Clash song may have been actually suggested by Bernard Rhodes, because he was like telling Stromer, look, Mick and Topper might start another Clash. We have to make it clear who's The Clash. We are The Clash. And so they may have, according to some of the folks who were around during the time, that song may have started out of Rhodes saying that. You know, Strummer, you've got to make this clear. As I mentioned before, fortunately, Strummer's an artist, and he's a deep thinker, and he's like, that's a little too simplistic for a song. It's like, so he, he had this other idea, which was inspired by experiences he had with fans, uh, particularly in their Far Eastern tour in 1982. So I was talking to... Um, Cosmo about this because there's a point where Mick Jones at least was making it appear as if he was going to start a rival clash. In fact, he called up Bill Graham and some other big promoters over here and said, "You think you're, um, you know, uh, hiring said, the clash? I'm, I'm bringing the real I'm bringing clash the real over. clash over." And and Cosmo and I was saying, "How real was that?" And on one hand, it's real because he's got lawyers, you know, issuing injunctions and creating trouble. Well, they did but, freeze their money. Exactly. So but that's a Cosmo, and you know, Cosmo is a friend. He loves Mick Jones. But he was like, he stopped me and said, come on. Can you picture Mick Jones fronting the clash? And the answer, he fought with self-evident. Of course not. Mick is not that person. He's not the soul of the band like Strummer was. Genius musically. I think he's actually pretty sincere in his politics. But his politics were, it's kind of like... Uh, I, there's this phenomenon in Europe where you're communist, like pretty hardcore communist, but you live a bourgeois life, and maybe that's what we do here. I don't know. <laughs> I might be a bourgeois communist. I'm not really a communist, but I might be a revolutionary Christian. Who knows what I am? Or am I a Satanist? Maybe a revolutionary Satanist. Could be. <laughs> anyway, point is that we often talk about things, but how much do we live them? And this is for people who follow the DC punk scene. Of course, that was a central, is a central question for us. You know, you're supposed to live the life 
that you sing about, that you talk about. And, and that's how people should judge you. Um, so I think there is a disconnect between his political beliefs and kind of this, this he wants to be a rock star. Well, that's what I was trying to say, and I think this is what Gray is trying to get at as well when he makes those sort of statements about him. And then look at that. He is so much more succinct than me. <laughs> Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> or is it Marcus Gray that's more succinct? He wrote awfully long books. Though. No, they're awfully long. It takes you a while to read them. Although they're valuable. So, other questions, lively questions, challenging questions. I actually had a question. So or a statement. I don't have a statement. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, it was always my understanding that Bernie Rhodes, when he put together the Clash, it was kind of to be a better version of the Sex Pistols, right? Like the Sex Pistols were, you know, kind of screaming about anarchy and these things, and he's like, "Listen, you all need to actually sing about something, right?" He kind of directed them in that way. So when I hear the later albums that they kind of lost their way and that Mick Jones kind of went this other way and he got into funk and hip-hop and all that stuff, he was like the David Bowie of the punk scene, right? Kind of picking and choosing from popular culture. I wonder, if did they really lose their way? <laughs> Good question. You can argue it either way because I was of two minds. Because on one hand, I was moved by those records in, in many ways and I thought it was a good antidote to punk, like because what's happening at the same time, it's hardcore. Um, and I love some of hardcore, but there's this kind of little prison that hardcore made for itself, which is louder, faster, shorter, you know. And you lose the melody at a certain well, point. Yeah, and, and, and you, it starts, maybe it, it becomes a little too small, samey, and samey. you have to break out of it. I mean, for in D.C., that's really what Revolution Summer is about, among other things, is breaking out of that self-made prison. So on one hand, I was like, cool, the Clash is showing that you don't have to, like, go loud, fast, shorter, and be punk. Punk is a spirit. It can be expressed in a million ways, which I think is actually really important for us now because as we grow past a point where most of us, you know, maybe we're in bands at a certain point or, you know, the, the scene was center of our lives, um, and at a certain point, it it's maybe stops being so central. You know, maybe you got kids. You can't be out at punk shows. You, your kids expect you around, you know. I'm missing my kids right now because we're probably giving their mama hell because <laughs> where's that daddy? <laughs> um, I want daddy to sleep on the floor of my room because <laughs> we did. We just moved and they're a little unsettled. So more than you needed to know about my family life. But um, be all right, Mark. He'll be yeah, okay. he'll be okay. I'm sure it's a growing experience. <laughs> um, just like those kids down on the border. You know, it's good to have a little time away from your yeah, parents. Yeah. 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 Little cage time. I'm really, I'm, it's a terrible thing to joke about. I am like outraged by that. I like, I have to stop myself from swearing. So I'm successful in it now, although I think kids clash. are mostly gone. So um, back to the clash. Um, so um, the point is that there's something beautiful in their ambition and their refusal to accept constraints. There's also something kind of self-indulgent. And I think this is, I actually, I think combat rock is much better than Rap Patrol from Fort Bragg. Why? Because, you know, they lost me. I love Sandinista, but you know what the first, one of the things I first did? is like, I made a tape where I took off all the stuff I didn't want to ever hear again. Which was mm, well, maybe what, half the album. That's what CBS did with the Intercourse record as well. Distilled Sandinista to two records with some interviews. Well, okay. there's something, those major labels, they got something there, right? <laughs> something really wise. Um, but like every second of it. Yeah, well, and, and you know, they're different points of view. And glory hallelujah, <laughs> we are not a fascist nation yet. Um, 
but so, but it, it also kind of felt like there might be a sense of losing their way because if you're out after everything, where where, where are you going to ultimately? And that's that's a good question. Um, and and so it makes sense for me that they tried this course correction, and it obviously touched me profoundly. Well, and I would okay. Then let me add on to that. As yes. I said, <laughs> as I said, I love Sandinista more than I love Combat Rock. Combat Rock is the record, honestly, I go back to the least, in all honesty. And um, at that particular point, I think that argument that they had lost their way, I think, was becoming a lot easier to make. Although, as Marcus said, and we've discussed this, anybody who thinks cut the crap is strange, look at anything on side two of Combat Rock. And or at Sandinista. I mean, Sandinista. Like, or, well, that's know, there's side, a lot of... It's just, it's just wild. It's out there. It's kind of crazy. Well, well, that's sides five and six, basically, of Sandinista. Yeah, but even there. I mean, they're, they're into this heavy dub, and they're going from one thing mm. to the next to the next. But anyway. But I can, I, can, I can only say how I felt myself at the time. After hearing, after my best friend from high school and I sat through this latest opus, we went, guys, this is great, but at a certain point, you got to remember what it was that brought us to the dance in the first place. So I was certainly not as dismissive as other people were when Mick was gone, because I thought, well, not only is the band moving on, but we have to move on. Because whether we like it or not, Mick's not here, Topper's not here, it's a new clash, it's a new world. Who knows what yeah, judging on like. its own merits. That's yeah, and so I, I personally remember taking a more pragmatic sort of cool stance to it. Like, okay, let's wait till we hear the music or go to the show, and we'll let that speak for itself. So I was probably as happy as anybody was when they announced that course correction. Let's go with uh, just one more question. Like how many bands stay consistent after five albums? Like, Good question. You know, so like you know, it's almost like it was bound to happen for them to get, you know, because not many bands stay that. And and there you can argue, and and actually I think this is actually a good argument for why, in a certain sense. Cut the Crap is actually a valid part of the Clash canon. Because what you look at is each of the Clash albums are quite distinct, including Cut the Crap. And what you see is each time the band is not content to be where they were the last record. They see that somehow punk is about growing. And, and Mick Jones definitely believed that. Um, and and you've got to give him credit for that. It's a courageous thing to do. And it's not a commercial thing to do, because guess what? I'm as guilty of this probably as anybody. What is, if you really love a record, what do you want the next record to be? Kind of like that one, right? <laughs> the same, but just slightly if, different. If, if a song has, an album has three good songs on it, it's a success. You know? <laughs> well, that's too low of a bar for the clash. <laughs> yeah. But you might, that might be true. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. but. Okay, I, I want to read one page here uh, to uh, send us out. This had a Just please, question. a question, question. Or, or a what, statement. What did the Clash, um, how did the Clash view the hardcore punk movement? Because it's weird that they got big really when that, that was the real movement. And there they got big and they were playing music and shows that really weren't what the original punk scene was all about. Yet that was still going on with Black Flag and stuff like that. 
Well, as I remember in the interviews from that time, Joe is fairly dismissive of it, actually. I think he says in Record Magazine in January of 84, I think that's it. Hardcore has forgotten it isn't the studs, it's the thoughts. Yeah. No, and I remember that meant a lot to me at the time because even though I love a lot of hardcore bands and they're very important to me, there was a certain sense for me personally at the time. I was a middle-aged punk rocker by then. I was 25. It's like... Anybody here a big fan of In the City by the, the Jam? What does it say? A Thousand Shining Faces, all under 25, one of the great anthems of the punk scene. I remember, I'm a silly guy. I'm very sentimental. I remember literally crying when I listened to that song for the first time, and I was like, that's not me anymore. But it's kind of, a, it's a narrow view. It's a narrow view. You know, I, I'm very silly. I'm glad you're smiling. Um, it was a silly thing. But that gives you a sense of like how much it meant. and. So yeah, no, thank you. Um, he also he also was had a criticism of these bands because he called them closet cases or uh, Tempest in a Teapot because Crass. Some of you are probably fans of Crass, a tremendous group of human beings and a, a very important band um, who who was inspired by the Clash but really lambasted them. <laughs> Um, and the Sex Pistols are other major inspiration. Well, as Penny Rambo said, we did what they said they were always going to do. <laughs> and there might be some truth to that, although, although, um, Strummer's point was that if you don't get heard, it doesn't matter how revolutionary your message is. And there is a certain element of truth to that. Why do I say that? Because if I look, and I'm, you know, I, again, I don't know how many of you have any sense of, like, my long sojourn in the DC scene and the DC scene, Fugazi and other folks, how much they mean and how they articulate this independent vision, like defying corporate rock culture. If I'm honest, how did I find punk rock? Patti Smith got to a small record store in Plentywood, Montana, <coughs> thanks to a major record label. The Sex Pistols, huge inspiration for me on a major record label. They got to Cactus Records. The Clash. So it's, it's a complicated picture because, because the Clash worked with these institutions which were in some ways antithetical to their vision. They got their vision to someone like me. Um, and now maybe as time goes on, I mean, I also heard Crass, ultimately, but I heard Crass because I heard this other stuff and I got interested and then I started really searching. Um, so it's tricky to know what's right. And part of the, the great drama of the clash is they are built on a contradiction or at least a paradox. They want to be the biggest band in the world and they want to be revolutionaries. How do you do that? Good question. Well, and so. the other aspect was when the clash started, the whole independent record revolution had yet to take off. It hadn't off. happened yet. Yeah. So there were no later options. Later, Stromer paid a great deal of tribute to independent bands, particularly singling out Fugazi. So um, I, I, we appreciate you taking this time. I, ho I hope it hasn't felt boring. I hope it hasn't gone on too long for you all. I want to finish with three quarters <laughs> of a page, which are some of the early pages in the book. Um, I'm going to set the scene uh, for you here. Um, Scenes like this are why we wrote the book. Because if you cut out this era of the clash, you cut out some amazing stories. And this is one story from the busking tour, when the clash just went out 
and played for whoever wanted to hear for free on acoustic guitars and the drummer hitting on anything that he could find. This is a story from a place called Sunderland. The air was sweat-swoked and electric. Five musicians could barely be glimpsed amidst a mass of humanity. Three men flayed acoustic guitars where a fourth pounded drumsticks against the metal and plastic of a chair. The fifth, a flame-haired singer in a green t-shirt with rolled up sleeves, exhorted the crowd from a slightly elevated perch. Dog tags jangled as he sang without a microphone, his head nearly touching the low ceiling of the cave-like space. The vocalist provided a visual center to the happening, but his voice was lost in the din. The unamplified guitars were similarly submerged, with only the rhythm cutting through to the back of the small room. A room probably not much bigger than this one. Such technological shortcomings seemed to matter little. Hundreds of voices howled as one. Breaking rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law and the law won. I needed money cause I had none. I fought the law and the law won. The song echoed poverty's desperation. Its doomed protagonist reduced to robbing people with a six gun. If evoking a mythical American West, its theme also fit with the present locale. Sunderland, a port city in northeastern Britain. Once Sunderland had been, quote, the largest shipbuilding town in the world, according to the BBC. Now, the ships were gone. Factory gates padlocked and rusty, with the area also hemorrhaging mining and other industrial jobs. A battle waged over the last two years to foresaw an even bleaker future had not ended in victory. Yet if the lyrics were grim, the spirit in the drum club discotheque on this evening in May 1985 was anything but joy mixed with defiance as crowd and band became one giant chorus spitting in the face of a cruel fate. We may have lost, the voices seemed to say, but we are not defeated. Thank you. Thanks for watching Ross for coming up to the great city in the country. Thank you, Frank Blake. Uh, Frank, just quickly, could you uh, tell the audience that you have a book that is coming out as well? Yeah, within uh, the next couple months, I have a book coming out called The Modern Listener's Guide, Jimi Hendrix, with mm, a wow. uh, foreword by Derek Trucks and an afterword by John McLaughlin. Um, Derek is one of the new guitarists who's the standard now, for, especially for slide guitar, and John McLaughlin was friends with Hendrix. and. Uh, Played, had a chance to play with him and, of course, was one of Miles Davis's key musicians. So it's taken about five years to get <laughs> done. It's been a lot of work, and uh, but uh, it's coming. So when, when is it actually coming? Uh, I would say probably within two months. Yeah, great. So hopefully we get it submitted for the interior design to get done this week, and we, away we go. Excellent. Thank you very much for conducting the interview. Thank you, Thank you everybody, for coming out. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.